Well, it's good to see you all today. It's a summer day out there. It certainly is hot and uh, rather humid, but most of you enjoy that. So, um, at least I assume you do. We're in um, the section of Ecclesiastes. If you're following, it's right at the top of page five. But um, what I what I really would like to do today is build on what King Solomon is saying here in this passage, uh, and kind of look at kind of look at uh, a bigger picture of how work is addressed in the scriptures. Um, if that's okay. And actually, even if it isn't okay, um, that's what we're going to do. But um, what is particularly uh, fascinating in this section of uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and last week we pretty much went through it. I want to say a word about verse 22 and 23, and then even 24 through 26 in a minute. Now, uh, where I am, that looks small, but can you, can you see that? Does that make sense? Um, here's what, if you don't mind, I'd like to do here. Uh, if you take a look at these four segments, this is sort of a biblical theology of work. That's a big phrase. It sounds so highbrow and esoteric. I don't want it to sound that way. If you start back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as God creates, he puts uh, Adam and Eve in the garden and he tells them to work it. He tells them, and the words there in Hebrew are wonderful words. I put them together. Worshipful work. Work is not a part of the fall. Work is not a result of sin. Work is one of the reasons uh, for which God created us. To be work. To be workers. To be Worshipful working, and when, when God says to Adam, I want you to I want you to work and keep this garden. The word keep there is a worship word in the scriptures. And so work, even before sin enters, even before the fall, work is really a form of worship. It's a form of bringing glory, or I should maybe say a means of bringing glory to God. And to work if I can extend it even a bit further, to work is to emulate our creator, to imitate our creator, to follow him, because we are his image bearers. Remember that? We are created in his image. So to work is to do something worshipful, to bring glory to God. So this is, sometimes this is misunderstood, that work is a result of the fall into sin. That's not correct. What happens as a result of sin's entrance into the world is painful toil. As we pursue worshipful work, it's painful toil. Sweat of our brow. There are weeds in our garden. There are dandelions in our yard. Those kinds of things make toil, make work painful. But still, we are called upon to worshipfully work as we painfully toil. Now, have I lost you, or are you with me? Let's ask some questions. Joe, what's your... Uh, what's that mean? I'm not sure if I'm with you. But I'm, right. not, I'm not sure how to clarify, so I will... 
sit in blinding well, silence. God creates us. Uh, he creates the human race uh, in his image. And part of being in his image is to work. To work worshipfully, to serve, serve uh, his creation as we are the image bearers of God. Okay, what is the effect, another way of asking that question then would be, what is the effect of sin on work? Because work is not a result of sin. The result is, and this is the actual phrase that's used, is painful toil. Work now becomes painful, it becomes burdensome, it becomes a toil. Uh, God says to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you shall, uh, you shall work. And it's, it's now a... Uh, <clears throat> It's now painful, it's arduous, it's difficult, because now everything that is on uh, planet Earth is experiencing the curse. That's a result of sin, so it's painful. So, again, that's why there are dandelions, that's why there are weeds, that's why there's sweat on our brows and so on. All right? Now this is what Solomon, this is what Solomon is getting at in this passage we have been studying. He says, I've worked hard all my life. I've labored, verse 18. I hate all the fruit of my labor for which I've labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who come after me, who knows whether he'll be wise or fool. This too is vanity. Verse 21, chapter 2. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to the one who has not labored with him. This too is vanity and great evil. What does he mean by that? He gives his legacy to one who has not labored with him. What does he mean by that? It's inheritance. Somebody inherits it. Normally it's children, but it could be somebody else. If you don't have children or whatever. But you're giving it to someone who hasn't worked for it. And, and he says, this is vanity. It's a great evil, he says. It's a monstrous evil. It's, it's hard for him to process this. This person is receiving what I work for, and they work for it. Verse 22, for what does a man get in all his labor and his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous, even at night. <clears throat> Excuse me, even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. What does he mean by that? Even at night, his mind does not rest. What does he mean? Can any of you identify with that? I mean, when I was president, I was in leadership for 20 years, academic VP5, president 15. There was hardly a night that went by where I didn't wake up thinking about something. That was a part of my responsibilities. And I would get this happen two, three times a week. It wasn't that I was anxiety-ridden where I was you know, panicked. I just had so much on my mind. I got up, I'd make notes about things I was going to do the next day, things I had forgotten. you got to remember to do it. I mean, that's what Solomon's talking about. That associated with work is not only this side of the fall, because this is where sin enters in, Genesis 3. Part of painful toil is worry and anxiety. Worry and anxiety. It's, it's some sleepless nights, some things that throughout the night you wake up, you, can, you can't divorce yourself from it, you can't separate yourself from it, you're thinking about it. And he says, he asks this question, 
You know, why all this striving with which he labors under the sun? And his mind does not rest either at night. This too is vanity. Solomon is saying, and this I think, at least I hope, it makes sense to you. Solomon is saying, if the box is closed, if there is no God, working like this doesn't really make a lot of sense. What's the alternative? Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. I'm going to die. That's my destiny. Why am I working so hard? Do you understand? I mean, isn't that a relevant question for the 21st century? I mean, what he's saying here is, in in this section we're reading in chapter 2, it's just like, this was... This is something written yesterday editorially in the New York Times and answered in the Wall Street Journal. You have a dialogue going between the liberal and the conservative on the value of nature of work. But you're both ending up, you know, not really sure if I can give you a significant reason. It's just that this is how we form our identity. Work is how we, we build our identity, and it's important. It's why we have value and worth. And Solomon comes back, that doesn't make sense. Because if there's no God and God's not in the picture, then it doesn't make sense why to work hard. It doesn't make sense for me to lose sleep and worry and anxiety because it doesn't make sense. So I'm not going to do it anymore. Now, that's not where he ends up. But he's asking these kinds of questions. Do you see some of this? Attitude in our culture today. Why work so hard? Why lose sleep? Why experience anxiety? Because today, there are many, 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 many ways in which you can have others take care of you. And you don't have to work very hard. Jim? Yes, I see some of that. But I also see, especially among men, it's kind of my observation... Might, might be really wrong, but I think men get so much of their identity out of who they are or what they do for a living. I mean, you watch a group of men who don't know each other get together, and the first thing they do is say, hey, I'm Jim, and uh, what do you do, Joe? You know, and Joe tells me, and I, it's kind of a sense of, Absolutely. I mean, Joe's a better man than I am because he's got a bigger job or a more important job or a job that's more appreciated. But I see so much of that tied up in here so it's 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 not just maybe maybe at the end of life you look back and say well what was it all about but during life it's a big deal let's let's go down you're absolutely right i think especially with men i think it is becoming more of a characteristic women as women are getting into more upper level positions and even executive positions even ceos and all of that i think that is becoming more, if you've read Sandberg's book, Lean In, which I don't know if you follow those kinds of things, but it's, a, it's an important book on how women can get into executive positions. And she is really talking a lot in that book about your identity is formed and framed by what you do for a living. Now, let's think about that for a minute. If, and I, I totally agree with Jim, that by and large, as a man, our identity is framed by what we do. If that is true and we get, we get the warm fuzzies and the affirmation and the higher salaries and all of that, 
uh, associated with our work, then what's the natural corollary to that? Work harder. I'm going to work harder and harder and harder so that I get more affirmation and higher salaries and higher return, which then turns into workaholism. Now, that's, that's an extreme, but I'm not sure that's as much of an extreme as we think it is, especially among men and in any kind of a position of authority. You work longer hours, you work harder, because that is your identity. What are the consequences of that? Well, failure will be devastating. You won't be able to handle Absolutely. it because it's a failure of your identity. Absolutely. And as you age and your health deteriorates, I mean, I've seen it happen with my dad. They called him a one-man gang. I mean, he was he a worker. He just a worker, you know. Mm -hmm. And he worked with his hands, and his hands were all busted up. Sure. Stuff. And uh, he was taking care of an apartment building, and mm -hmm. uh, went over to visit him one time. And, and he, was, he was in his late 60s, and I see him running. And I heard his keys jangling on the side of him, you know. But he was still driven. Yeah. To work like that, and then yeah. he got Parkinson's, and his health mm. went down, and he got tremor, and he couldn't perform anymore, and he just felt like, you know, what was the use? You know, he just, he just really beat him up bad. Good. He, just, he was not a happy camper. And yeah. So frustrated that he couldn't do the things he used to do. So yeah. it makes sense that we don't put our, you know, identity <coughs> tied to our work, but. Many of us do. How do you avoid that? How do you avoid that? That's what I want to talk about. But that's that's. Were you a plan to ask that question? <laughs> yeah. He and I had this all planned. We came in together, and I said, "Hey, about twelve noon, just at noon." Now let's let's do let's do one more thing with this before we we talk about Colossians, which I, I think is is an answer to this, and I have a place for that there in your notes on page five. But. Um, Andrew said something which is really important. Failure for a man in his work is devastating. For a man to lose his job, uh, either through downsizing or lack of performance or whatever the many reasons can be, uh, is devastating. And today, again, these are some broad statements, but today sometimes it's difficult to find another job then, at least of comparable value and salary and all those kinds of things. So, I mean, it can, be, it can be a very, very, very serious emotional, devastating and psychological crisis in a man's life. And as Woody correctly said, I see that in my father, too, as you get older. And if everything is wrapped around work as your worth and value and identity, when you lose that simply because you can physically no longer do it. And it isn't only retiring, it's you get to the point where you physically can't do it. My father is that. My dad's, he'll be 90 in about a month. And dad, I mean, dad is to the point he can hardly do anything. I and mean, he has a walker, and he just, it's difficult for him to do. He cannot cut the grass. He can't, he can't even plant flowers. He, there's just nothing he can do. Right? My dad is very, very, very difficult to live with now. He's just my mom. I, I call every week, and mom is just, I say, well, how was this week? And about 80% of the time, there are not positive words coming out of her mouth. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just he, doesn't, he doesn't have any. He has nothing. Everything that was his work was wrapped around his identity. He's lost that. Now, who is he? Now, 
there are other things. One of the concerns I have, because there are other trails we could, bunny trails we could go down. What if, if a man is a workaholic, gets his identity, so, and he becomes so wrapped around that and so obsessed with that, who can suffer from that? Well, his marriage can suffer. His children can suffer. I mean, you see, there, this, this approach to work, which is not the approach that's up there, but this approach to work has rolling consequences in relationships, family, as well as, as children, etc. It's a very, it's a very significant thing. We have to be very careful about that, but we'll, we'll not go down that bunny trail particularly. Um, I have a concern, and the concern is, and it's not that this is evil because I don't see the Bible speaking against this particularly. But as women are more and more, not only in the workforce, they've been in the workforce in major numbers since World War II, but getting into leadership and executive positions, we're starting to see the same thing with women. There's no difference. Women, are, women, they're struggling with what is my identity. Because so typically a woman's identity is framed by other things than just work. I'm a mother. I'm a wife. I work with my kids in school as a volunteer, etc. And that's all revolves around children. And as the children get older and they go to high school and college, then they lose that identity. Who am I? And that's why sometimes a man and a woman who've been married for 25 years and the kids are all gone, they have to kind of get reacquainted again. And that is a very standard thing in Western civilization because they have, they have so developed their identity apart from one another that when the kids are all gone, they get, who are you? Oh, I'm married to you, aren't I? Now, I'm being extremely facetious there, but the Bible speaks to these things. Now, I want to ask you this question, and I want you to think about it. If our identity is not framed by what we do for a living, our work, our job, our vocation, what is it? It should be an identity in Christ. Exactly. Exactly. 276 times in the New Testament in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 What I believe the what I believe the scriptures are saying to us is that we are to frame our identity around being in Christ. That enables us in the painful toil of pursuing worshipful work, there's the enablement to do this. The best place to go for this, by this I mean the best place I think to, to land, to think about what does worshipful, meaningful work in Christ look like? My identity is in my relationship with him. That's my identity. It's not my work. It's not how many degrees I have. It's not the size of the house I live in. It's not how many cars I drive. It's not how many children I have. It's not my salary. I mean, it could just go on and on and on and on. In, in no way am I saying those things are not important. But all of those things are transient. Do you know what I mean by transient? 
They go quickly. That's part of what Solomon's saying. Things are going so quickly. And I'm, I'm losing my anchor. I'm losing my focal point. I'm, I'm losing my identity, to put it in the 21st century word. What the Bible says to us is what it's saying here. It's, it's restoring Christ. That our identity, our worth, our value, the meaning of who we are, is centered in our relationship with the living God. What's the nature of that relationship? It's eternal. There's no end to it. It doesn't really change. You read the last verses of Romans chapter 8. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Death Death doesn't end that relationship. Getting old doesn't end that relationship. That's that's the eternal perspective on our identity. 3,000 years ago, Solomon is struggling with this. Solomon is struggling with exactly the same thing that we're struggling with today. If we leave God out of the picture, the only source of our identity can be our, our work, our vocation. That's who we are. No. That's not who you are. I told you this last week. I'm pretty sure I said this last week. I had a friend back in Pennsylvania, which is where we're from. This goes back quite a long time ago, that conversation. But he used to say, when he would introduce himself or Jim was having that imaginary dialogue with Joe, uh, you know, the second question usually out of him, hi, I'm Joe. Next question is, what do you do for a living? And his, his response was, uh, oh, I, I represent Christ. No, 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 no. What do you do for a living? I represent Jesus Christ. That was his answer. And, of course, uh, you know, the person that's asking getting real frustrated. And so about the third time, he would say, oh, you mean how do I pay expenses? I just thought that was such a refreshing way to look at life. To look at his purpose and meaning and worth and value and identity. That's why you hear me pray a lot of times when we're done with our study, uh, kind of near the end of the prayer. I just said, Lord, help us to represent you well. That is what we're called to do. In a leadership role in homestead, homestead, real estate, banking, that's important. That's extremely important. You need to worshipfully work and serve and pursue that. But you do it to the glory of God because your identity is not that. Your identity is your relationship with Christ, which is eternal. Nothing can change that. And as we get older and run down, there's so much we can't do anymore simply because our body is starting to shut down. That identity doesn't change. Still, why we're purpose and meaning and value and worth? Because my relationship with Christ is going to go beyond the, the physical world. It'll be a part of my relationship, which goes on into the new heaven and new earth. That's what Paul addresses in Colossians chapter three, verse twenty-two through four one. And we looked at that last week, real briefly. I'd like to look at that again, if you don't mind. And as I usually say, even if you do mind, we're still going to do it, I hope. But, um, and what I've done up there on the, on the board is I've listed 
what I see as some of the, the, the key principles here in this uh, little paragraph in Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1. Now, I'm positive I said this last week, but let me repeat this to you. Slave-master was the economic relationship in the ancient world. That, that's how work was done. The, the estimate by historians is that the Roman Empire, which is a Mediterranean empire, had about 100 million people in it. 60 million of that 100 million were slaves. Now, again, slavery is not the same kind of construct that you think of in the pre-Civil War South. So if, if it's okay, I don't want to go into that anymore unless you really want me to. I'm just saying that the economic relationship of the ancient world was slave to master. And so Paul is saying, slaves, the workers, employees, let's put it in 21st century language, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, because you fear the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, because you know that the Lord will from from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now let me stop there. What you see here is you see some action. How? What does worshipful work look like in Christ? That's a way to construct it. What does worshipful work look like in Christ? <laughs> I obey my boss. I obey the person who's in authority over me. Now, as in all things, the Bible says obedience you obey until it's a sin to obey. If your boss orders you to do something that's illegal, you, you are not under obligation to do that, but you may lose your job. But that, anyway, obedience. Now, I'm trying to capture a couple of the different phrases there, but a sincere consistency, a sincerity, it's an attitude. This, this is our action. This is our attitude. And this is our perspective. The action word in worship, worship, worshipful work in Christ is obedience, with an attitude of sincere consistency. Even when my boss is on vacation, or he's on his lunch break, or she's gone for the day, I'm still doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. Because my perspective is, I serve the Lord Christ. If you look at that phrase in Colossians chapter 3 there, that's the only time that appears in the New Testament. Lord Christ. Lord is all over the place. Christ is all over the place. Lord Jesus Christ is all over the place. But Lord Christ is unique. Because Lord, kurios in Greek, is, is Lord. It's master. It's the boss. So another way of saying that, your perspective is my boss is Jesus. He's my boss. And then from chapter 3, verse 24, you have the eternal perspective on this. It's so important to the Lord. It's so important to the Lord that I serve and work with this action, attitude, and perspective that he's going to reward me for. It's a part, there's an eternal dimension to work. That is a, that is a, I've, I've done, over the years, I've done a number of these kinds of sessions um, in churches and in businesses and so on that wanted a Christian perspective on things, but that's not as popular as it used to be. But that this is a this is a way 
that we can help people who are believers to be motivated in pursuing excellence in whatever they do, in everything they do. Because your boss is Jesus. Now let's see if you have questions or comments, Woody. Yeah, security you can but the, the issue is this this is our position I am in Christ this is my position and Romans chapter 8 uh, exact verses I forget it's at the end about 36 through 39 very close to that that nothing can change that I'm in Christ nothing can change that that's your position this stuff here is the process. It takes it takes some time for us to begin, and at one level it isn't that difficult, but this is, and this is, that the process of seeing the value of my work, my worshipful work, these are the things, these are the things that are pleasing to God. I'm obedient, I'm sincerely consistent, because my boss is Jesus. When I clock in in the morning, I'm clocking in with Jesus. Now, we don't clock in much anymore, but you know what I mean by that. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm on the clock with Jesus now because he's my boss. That is, that is a perspective. That is a perspective that very few people have in the workplace. And without that perspective, work is a drudgery. Work is, work, work is painful, and there's very little joy in it. But work, whatever the nature of that is, if you understand the eternal perspective to it, that really changes. Let me ask you, what would happen to productivity in the United States if everyone looked at work this way? Oh, my goodness. What would happen to labor unions if everyone looked at work this way? We wouldn't need them. 
There will be no labor unit. Because you've got to look at chapter 4, verse 1, too, because the employer has a significant obligation before God in how he treats his workers. But this is, this, Woody, this, and we, I know we've talked about this, the difference between position and process. It takes, it, it takes us time. We can say intellectually, okay, I got those words, I understand the meaning of those words, I follow that, but deliver it. Yeah, and, uh, and as in the service I went to Sunday, pastor talked about sometimes we become under attack and we have doubt and disbelief. And everybody, including the pastor, maybe including you Absolutely. at times, Absolutely. struggle with doubt and disbelief. Absolutely. And, you know, just to take it a little bit further with me, you know, I had a near-death experience. That's right. And it's taken me a long time to get back. And I should be just praising God to anybody that would listen. And I do when I think of it. But I'm so frustrated that I don't have the energy. You know, and I think I'm under attack, so I... Don't praise God. You know, maybe Satan's under, he doesn't want me to declare that I'm healed because of prayer and, sure. and God. Uh, anyway, so I do struggle with doubt and disbelief. You know? I'm still coming up here every Wednesday to go to church and I read the Bible. Sometimes, maybe not as much as I should. But, uh, I don't know if we ever <coughs> can ever get to that place where where we can just really feel good about ourselves through Christ. I don't know if I can. Well, at one level, uh, I mean, I totally totally agree with you. And there are many many instances in every one of our lives around in this room where doubt is very much a part of of life. It's a reality. I mean, Woody, you read the Psalms, many of them written by King David and others. The Psalms are filled with doubt. I mean, David is so frustrated with the God. I mean, one of my favorite, this happened two or three times in the Psalms. Lord, I've been praying to you for a long time. Are you up there? Are you up there? You're not answering. That, that could doubt, that's frustration. God? Do you really have my best interest at heart? Because I've been praying to you about this for four years, and you haven't answered. I've been there. I've been there. And that natural consequence of doubt and beginning to wonder, God, do you really have my best interest at heart? I'm not sure you do. And then the Lord does something, and there's a reminder of his goodness and his grace and and then you're just, Lord, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have doubted you. But listen, this side of heaven, doubt, sometimes distress and questioning God, those are going to be natural consequences. Woody, that is part of the process. That is part of the process. And it's, if you have doubts, that doesn't mean you've lost everything. If, you, if you're having doubts, that doesn't mean you've slipped out of the circle. That's not what it means. The, the thing that David did, the thing that Paul does, they keep coming back. This is who I am. I'm in Christ. 
That's who I am. That's my identity. That's the most important thing. That's, that's settled. That's my position. That's a settled issue. And that's faith. That's faith. But I don't want you to, um, now I'm going to speak to you personally, but I suspect it may apply to a lot of guys. The worst thing to do, okay, I don't feel God as if you're close to me anymore, so I'm going to work that much harder to make sure that I think you're closer to me. So I'm going to perform a little better. I promise tomorrow I'm going to start reading my Bible three chapters instead of two. And instead of ten minutes in prayer, I'm going to spend 20 minutes. Then maybe you'll answer me, Lord. If that is your response, you've just set a trap for yourself. A big trap. And I guarantee you, you're going to get caught in that trap. Because when you don't pray for 20 minutes and you only pray for 10 minutes, you're going to say, I'm not worthy of you anymore, Lord. I've slipped out of this because I didn't pray for 20 minutes like I said I was going to yesterday. And Lord, I just ran out of time. Instead of reading four chapters, I only read one. I really feel bad. I'm guilty. You've just slipped into a performance-based approach to your relationship with God. And what God is saying to you again and again and again about a thousand different ways, there's nothing you can do to establish your relationship with me. I did it all. I just want you to put your faith in me. There's nothing you can do more or less to affect that relationship. It's established. You put your faith in Christ. And now you begin the process of transformation. We are so... I was... The other day, I when I'm traveling between the different things I do uh, here in the city, I, I listened to the radio. I was listening to a guy, or even tapes or things like that. I was listening to a guy who was saying, he was addressing it to women. I was, I was astonished by this. And he's saying, now I know you're busy with raising your little children. Some of you out there have three or four kids under 11. And you're saying, I don't have time to pray. This is what I want you to do. Tomorrow, I want you to promise God you're going to pray 30 minutes. I was, I was about ready to throw my Bible at the radio. That, that man, I know what he was doing. It was a very sincere thing. Saying to her, make God an important part of your life. Make God an important part of your day. But why put the burden on a young mother who has three or four children under 11 years old, the burden of you got to measure it and quantify it by 30 minutes a day? How many mothers that have four kids under 11 are going to be able to do that? You see what he's doing? He's, by that kind of language, he's setting that dear, dear mother who's listening to that for a guilt trip. Where she is going to, she is going to now define her relationship with the living God based on her performance. You follow what I'm saying? I'm choosing my language very carefully there. But measuring my worth and value to God based on my performance. God is saying, you can't perform. You can't merit. You can't earn my favor. That's why I sent Jesus. He did it all. Now trust me. And as we walk together through life, instead, what I would say to that mother, just throughout your day, just keep talking to the Lord. There's arrow prayers. Two or three second prayers. Talk to the Lord. Have him involved in everything in your day. Talk to the Lord. Take a couple of cards and put them, this is what my wife did, put, put them in different places of the house so that you see that. It's a reminder that God's with you. God's sustaining you. God's strengthening you. Because you have three or four little kids. I mean, it's just not going to happen. 
I just, I was so frustrated by what that man was saying to, to, to women. What Paul is saying to us here in Colossians 3 is this is the reality. We live in a sin-cursed world, but we're now in Christ. Our relationship with him is secure because that's our position. Now here, here are your goals. This is how I want you to look at your work. Worshipfully, with eternal significance, because you have a new boss to therefore sincerely, consistently follow as you obey your boss here on earth. All right? Yes, sir. A comment. I always need to be reminded of just what Jim said. Because it is so contrary to how we live every day. And so okay. to, to understand that side of the fence, it makes no sense in our everyday life. That's, there's a book called Practice Its Presence. Yeah. And that is, I mean, it's a cool book. But mm. Just what helps you on, to talk to God all the time. Because there's a lot of people that don't read the Bible. My wife, uh, as far as I know, she still does it. For years, in her, uh, when she's working around the house and stuff, she has jeans, and she has a little piece of paper in her pocket, her left pocket, and she pulls it out because she feels it. And now all she has to do is feel it there, and just says, "You are a trophy of God's grace." That's a great reminder. Because, I mean, Peggy, she has a heart condition, autoimmune disease. I mean, she, she can be sick. She can have really bad days. And if you're keyed into performance, you're keyed into activity as a measure and value of your, and worth of you as a person, you're not going to be able to do those things. You'll be reminded, it doesn't matter what's happening today. I'm still a trophy of God's grace. Because, and this is what we said at the beginning of our time this morning, that as we get older, as we get chronologically older, it gets more and more difficult. If you measure everything of your worth and value by your performance, that's what my dad, my dad, my dad's a believer. He came to faith later in his life. But this is what he's really struggling with. He's just constantly coming back. To, I, I'm of no value and worth anymore. I can't do anything. Yes, that's right. You can't do anything because you're 90 years old. But not, not one infinitesimal amount have you been diminished in the eyes of God in terms of your value and worth. Because this is who you are. You're in Christ, God. It's not going to be too long until you're going to be with him. And you're going to see that everything that you are thinking about now is not the right way to look at it. Yet we live in a world where the ability to contribute establishes value. You're old and not contributing. What value are you? You're an unborn child. That's right. What value are you? You're, you're, you're and the phrase, the phrase we use sometimes is quality of life. Right. Quality of life. Where you, you become sick or yeah. frail or yeah. become a paraplegic or something. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's important not to let it hamper you. You should still have dreams. Oh, it, it, absolutely. This doesn't diminish any of that. Uh, all right, do, you, uh, do you have strategic plans? Do you have plans for the future? Do you have? Yes. The Proverbs are filled with that. My favorite is Proverbs 24. Or Solomon, or it's Asaph, I think. But anyway, he says, be like the ant. 
I don't like to be compared to an ant. Well, that's not the point. It's just be, be like the ant. The ant is always planning for the future. And it's all, you know, they work together, but they're always planning for the future. Because you work hard during the spring and the summer and early fall because winter's coming. And if you're an ant, there isn't any food out there in the winter. That's what Solomon's saying. So, yeah, I mean, you still do it. And you dream, yes, absolutely. That big goal, big dreams, yeah. Some of the greatest individuals in history have been the dreamers. And many of the dreamers were those who knew Christ. Um, I, I don't want to get ahead of you if, if you're going to address this at some point, but I'm wondering if you can address the aspect of worshipful, worshipful work not overworking and Sabbath rest, that, that aspect of it, like how that fits into it being serving God rather than serving your work as your identity or something like that. Well, I think uh, there are two questions there, I, I, I think. Um, Worshipful work that doesn't become alcohol, uh, alcoholism, workaholism, or where you are just obsessed with doing nothing but work. The only, the only thing that I think is, is, is an offsetting of that is just a balance in your life. You, you're seeing, and, and it just it naturally follows, if my identity is in Christ, not in my work, then workaholism is just as serious as drug addiction, pornography addiction, alcohol addiction, or any addiction. Because it's now controlling me. Paul says in Coloss in Corinthians, I will not be controlled by anything because I belong to Christ. So I think, and again, this is easy to say this, but that is, that's the only way to really begin to deal with that. And I think that, that what gives us that capacity to find balance in our life is the ninth fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Self-control and balance go hand to hand. They're, they're just complements to one another. And I think that's, Andrew, that's part of that process. Now, the other aspect of that is, um, and I think that was the other part of your question, is the necessity of rest. Um, rest is very important to God. One of my favorite passages in the Gospel of Mark, where the guys, Jesus and the disciples, they've had a really, really busy day. I mean, it's like a, it's, if we added it up, it's like a 22-hour day. And Jesus says to them, up in northern Galilee, Jesus says, come away and re- let's rest for a while. That's, that's, that's good. Jesus is saying, it's time to rest. And I think rest can have a lot of different meanings to it. It isn't only sleep, but it's a change of pace. And that is, in ancient Israel, that's what Shabbat was all about, the Sabbath. In, it seems the early church then shifted that to Sunday, the first day of the week. <clears throat> and I think either, however you look at that, there is a very, there's a significant importance to a day of rest. And not necessarily a day of sleeping, but a day where your routine is different, your body, your mind, your emotions are renewed. Let me tell you a little story. I don't know how much you're familiar with this, but the French Revolution, uh, which started in 1789, and the real intense part of the French Revolution was 1793, 94, and 95, when the Jacobins, really, really extreme radicals, were in control of the French Revolution. And you know what they tried? They tried to change the calendar. Instead of a seven-day, uh, instead of a six-day work week, they changed it to a 10-day work week. They changed the names for all the days and the months and everything. What do you think happened to productivity? 
going from a six-day week to a 10-day week, then a day off. What do you think happened? It was an absolute disaster. It was an absolute disaster. Because they, I mean, they, were, they were intentional about this. They hated Christianity. They had everything associated with Christianity. So they're going to build a new, uh, a new revolutionary man, which Rochefort spoke of, a new revolutionary man based on reason and rational thinking. No God. They paraded the goddess of reason through the streets of Paris. Well, they implemented this. It was an absolute, it was a catastrophic calamity for France. And then Napoleon came in and picked up the pieces. But I say that because a seven-day week, six days and a day that's different, that sixth, seventh day is to be for worship and rest, change of faith, that's by God's design. That's how God patterned it. And if we choose not to follow it, God gives us the freedom to do that. But to choose not to follow it will have a consequence. Emotionally, physically, mentally, psychologically, and spiritually. 